It's good to see everyone here this morning. We're thankful for the presence of every person, every family. Especially thankful for you if you consider yourself a visitor. If perhaps this is your first time to worship here at the Northwest Church of Christ, we want to give you a special welcome. Let you know how glad we are that you're here. We hope and we pray that you're strengthened by this service that we offer up to God. But you know, most of all, our goal and our purpose in being here this morning is to please God, to honor Him, and to do our very best to follow His Word and worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's been great to be here over the last couple weeks and be a part of this gospel meeting. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to come, to spend time with you, you know, not only here in the assembly, but away from the assembly. Very thankful for the opportunity to once more this morning go to God's Word and consider some very, very important things. This morning I want to ask you a question, and I want to use the Bible to help you answer this question that you see behind me. And the question is this, did you receive a scriptural baptism? Now I realize this is a very personal question. And whenever we're confronted with very personal questions like these, we have a tendency to maybe try to deflect the question, become maybe defensive about the question. And the reason I know that is because, you know, many times I've been right there where you're sitting and had a teacher or a preacher in the church confront me with very personal questions like this. This morning, I hope that you'll receive this teaching with an open and a humble heart because I will try my very, very best this morning to teach these things and tell you these things from a very humble heart. I'm very passionate about God's Word and what it teaches, and I want to help people understand the truth about what God says in His Word. Sometimes, as we go about to help people understand the truth, we have to expose some things that aren't true. We have to expose some error in the process. And you know, any time we expose error that a person may have believed or may have obeyed, we're not doing that to be harsh or critical or point the finger or be mean-spirited or divisive in any way. But we want to help people to understand the truth. And I want to help you this morning understand the truth so that you can honestly answer this question. Did you receive a scriptural baptism? The Bible teaches that there's one baptism. There's one baptism available to you and me today. Ephesians 4 and 4, the Bible says there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. You know, the Bible plainly tells us here that there is one baptism. You know, we look around us in the religious world today and we see a lot of different types of baptism being taught and being practiced. Uh, some churches will take a little bit of water and pour it over the head of a baby or, a, or an infant and the uh, to some churches, this is the baptism that they practice. Other churches will not baptize babies with a little bit of water, but will take adults 
people who've reached a level of maturity and come into adulthood, and rather than sprinkle or pour a little bit of water over their head, they will completely immerse them or dip them down in the water. Some churches teach that uh, when we are baptized, uh, that it has to be connected with some very spiritual experience like speaking in tongues or having a miraculous manifestation of a change that happens when we receive baptism. And, you know, then there's other groups of people that say, well, you know, baptism really isn't all that important. It's optional. It's not essential for salvation. If you want to do it, great. If you don't, don't worry about it. We see all these different ideas and all these different practices when it comes to baptism. But you know, the Bible says there's one baptism. There's one baptism. We read that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. I don't know what preconceived ideas that you came here this morning with about baptism. What I would ask you to do, though, is just for a moment, move, to, move those preconceived ideas out of your mind for just a moment. And let's just objectively and honestly go to God's Word and let's just find the one baptism that Scripture teaches. Let's not be confused by all the many things we see going on around us concerning baptism in different religious groups. Let's push all that aside and find the one baptism of Scripture. First thing I want you to understand about scriptural baptism we need to correctly understand the scriptural mode of baptism. To understand the scriptural mode or the proper way to be baptized, the, the, the word itself, baptism, teaches us a lot about that. Did you know that the word baptize or baptism is actually a Greek word? It's actually a Greek word. You know, the men who translated the New Testament from the original Greek languages into our English or Spanish versions of our Bible, they had to know and study Greek words. And one of the Greek words in the original New Testament was this Greek word you see on the screen behind me, baptizo. That's the Greek word baptizo. Beta, alpha, pi, tau, uh, iota, o, zeta, omega. Those are the Greek Characters, the Greek characters of the Greek alphabet that spelled the Greek word, baptizo. When you go back to the original Greek from which the New Testament was translated into English, you'll find that's the word for baptize, baptizo. When the translators of our Bibles come to this word baptizo, rather than translate the word as maybe dip or immerse or submerge, because that's how this Greek word was used in, in literature of the first century, the translators of the, of the Bible did something interesting. They didn't translate the word. They did something called transliteration. They transliterated this Greek word baptizo and really invented a new English word called baptize. They took the beta, made it a B, and alpha and A, the pi a P, the tau a T, the iota and I, the zeta a Z, omega became E, Lo and behold, we've got a new word in our English language, the Greek word, or the English word, baptize. Now the problem with uh, transliteration is, you know, we started with baptizo, and we want to understand what that word really means, and just to transliterate it into a new word, baptize, sort of leaves it unclear as to what baptism really is. Okay? But you know, the Bible gives us an answer as to what the mode of baptism is. And I want you to know that this Greek word baptizo 
means to dip, to immerse, or or to submerge. We see that in Scripture. Scriptural baptism requires much water. We read in John 3.23 about John the Baptist, his ministry. John 3.23, that John also was baptizing in Anon near to Salem because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. The Bible says John the Baptist had strategically selected this certain location to do his baptism because there was much water there. Scriptural baptism is something that requires much water. Scriptural baptism requires a going down into and a coming up out of some body of water. Acts 8 and 38, the Bible, this is the story of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. The Bible says in Acts 8, 38, that he, that's the eunuch, commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went both down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water... The Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Notice here when it came time for this Ethiopian eunuch to be baptized, he commanded the chariot that they were riding in to stop, to stand still. The preacher Philip and eunuch got down, went down into some body of water. We don't know what it was, whether it was a river, a pond, a lake. They went both down into that water, that eunuch was baptized, and then they came up out of that water. So scriptural baptism, the one baptism of the Bible, involves this going down into and coming up out of some water. Bible also teaches that baptism is a burial. Scriptural baptism requires a burial. In fact, it's a burial in water. Colossians 2 and 12 says, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen... With him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Here the Bible talks about baptism as being a burial. We also see that over in Romans chapter 6 verses 3 to 4. Romans 6, 3 to 4, listen to this. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Verse 4 says, therefore we are buried with him by baptism. We're buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Baptism is a burial, and we understand what burial is all about. When a friend or a loved one passes away, there comes a time for us to have the funeral, and we we go out to the, the cemetery, and it comes time to bury that friend or bury that loved one. We understand what has to happen there. They have, they, they're put down in the ground and completely covered over. And that's what scriptural baptism is all about. It requires that burial. It's a burial in water. We've already acknowledged the fact that some churches give a baptism that's not a burial, that's not immersion, that's not dipping down in the water. Some churches give a baptism that might be sprinkling a little water or or pouring a little water over a person's head. Now let's take that practice and compare it to what we've seen from God's Word concerning the one baptism of Scripture. We read there in John chapter 3 that scriptural baptism required much water, but you know sprinkling and pouring really doesn't require much water, does it? Requires just a little bit. We read there in Acts 8 that that scriptural baptism requires a going down into and a coming up out of the water. 
But sprinkling and pouring water doesn't involve anything like that, does it? We've talked from Romans 6 and Colossians 2 about how baptism is in fact a burial. There's no burial that takes place, is there, when we have a little bit of water sprinkled on our head or poured over our head? So the idea of sprinkling or pouring for baptism really does not line up with what the Scripture teaches about the one baptism. Now on the other hand, let's take the idea of immersion or dipping or submersion in water. Okay? From which the Greek, that's what the Greek word baptizo really means, by the way. Okay? Does scriptural baptism require much water? Certainly requires more than sprinkling or pouring of water. Does uh, immersion require a going down into and a coming up out of some body of water? Absolutely. Does immersion paint a picture of a burial for us, a burial in water? It absolutely does. And you see, it's for these reasons that we preach and that we practice that in order to receive the one baptism of Scripture, you need to be immersed. You need to be buried in water. You need to... uh, comply with what the Scripture teaches about baptism. Now that we clearly understand the mode of baptism and how it should be done, it should be done by by, uh, immersion, let's talk a little bit about the prerequisites of baptism, the things that we should do before we are baptized. Bible teaches that one, one of the things we need to do before baptism is we need to hear and believe the gospel. In Acts 8, verse 35, again, this is that conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. The Bible says that Philip, that's the preacher, opened his mouth and began at the, and began at the same Scripture and preached unto him Jesus. This man needed to hear about Jesus, and Philip preached to him. He heard the gospel. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. So notice here, before the eunuch was ready or, uh, for baptism, he had to hear the gospel. And Philip said, you can be baptized if you believe it. Hearing and believing the gospel, that, those are steps that we have to step through. Those are things we must do before we're ready for baptism. Another thing that we must do is we must repent of the sin that we have in our life before we're baptized. There has to be a change in our life when we come to Christ, when we obey Him in baptism. This is something that Peter told the Jews in Acts 2 verse 38. Peter just preached the gospel unto them. And verse 37 says they were pricked in their heart by the preaching of the gospel. They, they had heard and they had believed. Acts 2.38 says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter told them here before their baptism they needed to do what? They needed to repent. Repentance is an important step. It's an important decision that we have to make in our mind and in our heart before we receive the one baptism of Scripture. We also need to make a confession of our faith. You know... The Ethiopian eunuch there in Acts chapter 8 confessed his faith before baptism. We left off a few moments ago in Acts chapter 8 verse 37 concerning the story of that eunuch. Philip preached Jesus to him. He said, here's water. What's hindering me to be baptized? He said, if you believe you can be baptized. 
Acts 8, 37, Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he, that's the eunuch, answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went both down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. You see, this eunuch made a confession of that belief or faith that he had in his heart. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And having made that confession... That chariot stopped, and Philip took him down into the water and baptized him. You know, this confession is an important step in uh, the plan of salvation. The importance of it is also taught in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. It says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So we notice here there are several scriptural prerequisites that we must meet before we are truly scriptural candidates for baptism. We must hear, we must believe, we must repent and confess our faith in Christ. The question then becomes concerning the practice of infant baptism, you know, sprinkling a little bit of water over a baby's head and, and saying he's baptized. Does a, a baby or a newborn infant meet the scriptural prerequisites of baptism? Can a baby hear the gospel and understand it? They can't, can they? Can they believe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? No, because they're not able to hear and comprehend it. Can they repent of their sin? I would submit to you today that little babies are born innocent into this world. They're not born with any sin that they inherited from their parents or their grandparents or from Adam and Eve. Little babies come into this world innocent in the eyes of God. They don't have any sin to repent of. They don't need baptism because they're clean and innocent in the sight of God. Can they make a confession of their faith? No, they're not able to do that. And it's for these reasons that we teach and we would tell you today that if you receive baptism as an infant or a baby or a very small child, by sprinkling or by pouring with water that you have not indeed received the one scripture of baptism. You received something else. Now, you, if we were baptized as a baby or as an infant, you probably didn't have a lot of choice in that matter, did you? That decision was made by a parent, a relative. They were probably trying to make the best decision that they knew how. But what I want you to know is that if you were baptized as a baby, you didn't receive the one baptism of Scripture. And if you didn't receive the one baptism of Scripture, we want to encourage people to obey the Scriptures, to, to, to receive the one baptism of Scripture. And we encourage people to do that because we care about them. We care about people. We want to help people with the truth. Let's take, for example, this adult individual here on the screen. When we grow into adulthood, can we hear the gospel? Yes, we can. Can we believe the gospel if we choose to do so? Yes. Can adults repent of their sin? Yes, when we grow into adulthood and reach a certain age of accountability in our life, we commit sin. We've got sin in our life. We need to repent of that sin to get right with God. Can we make a confession of our faith? Yes. We can't do, those, do these things when we're babies, when we're infants. But when we mature and grow into adulthood, we become scriptural candidates for baptism. 
I want to move on and talk a little bit about the, the purpose of scriptural baptism. And this is one of those areas where there is a lot of confusion in the religious world. And I want to try to use the Bible to help make sense of all this. There are many churches that teach today that we are saved by prayer before we are baptized. And then there are others who say, no, you're saved at the point of receiving water baptism. Now these two ideas are in direct contradiction of one another. It's got to be one or the other, right? Either you're saved by saying a prayer, and then later on you go get baptized if you want to, or you're saved at the point of receiving baptism. Which is it? We'll let God's Word instruct us and teach us and answer uh, these questions here. We'll do so by looking at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. Remember in the process of Paul's conversion, he was on his way to Damascus, he met the Lord Jesus. He was blinded by a bright light that shone down from heaven. The Lord spoke to him and told him to go into the city of Damascus and wait there. And then in Acts chapter 9 verse 8, the Bible says that Saul arose from the earth and when his eyes were open, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither did he eat nor drink. Saul spent three days blind. In Damascus, not eating, not drinking. The Bible says there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. The Lord said to him, Arise, go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. Now what I want us to understand and see from this, Scripture tells us that Paul spent three days... Three days of blindness, three days of fasting, not eating, not drinking anything. And during that time, Paul was in prayer. He prayed to God. He prayed fervently. Paul fasted and prayed for three days. But you know, prayer was not enough to wash away Paul's sins. And the reason why we know that is because later on in the story of his conversion, that preacher Ananias comes to him, lays his hands on him, helps him receive his sight, and then Ananias tells Saul, after three days of fasting and prayer, mind you, he says and, and, in Acts twenty two sixteen, and now why tarriest thou? It means what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Saul was still in his sins, even after praying and fasting for three days. And you know what that tells me? It tells me that prayer cannot take away our sin. Now, we're not against prayer at all. We should be a prayerful people and pray to God. But we've went outside the teaching of Scripture if we say and practice this idea that saying a prayer will take away sin. If three days of prayer wasn't enough to take away Saul's sin, repeating a prayer that a preacher, whether it was in a church or on the radio or on TV, repeating a prayer that a preacher tells us to preach, that's not enough to save us of our sin. Paul needed to do something else. After praying and fasting, the preacher Ananias said, Get up and be baptized. And when you'll do that, you'll have your sins washed away by the blood of Christ. So the purpose of scriptural baptism... Salvation doesn't come by saying a sinner's prayer. 
Salvation doesn't come by asking Jesus into your heart. Now listen, I want Jesus in my heart. I certainly do. But salvation doesn't come through asking Jesus into our heart. The Bible teaches that salvation comes when we receive water baptism. This is what Peter preached to the Jews in Acts 2.38. Peter told them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. He told them to be baptized for or in order that they might receive the remission or forgiveness of their sins. They weren't saved from their sins before baptism. But Peter said, if you'll repent and be baptized, you'll receive the remission or the forgiveness of your sin. That's the purpose of scriptural baptism. It should be for the remission of sins. This is something Jesus taught Peter the Apostle in Mark 16, 16, when he said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned or condemned. Now Jesus didn't say, He that believeth and prays will be saved and then he can go get baptized. Jesus didn't say that. Now many, many preachers today preach that. But Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Salvation comes at the point of us receiving water baptism. 1 Peter 3.21, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. You see how intimately and how closely baptism and salvation are connected here? The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing special about the water. It's not the washing away of the filth of our flesh that saves us and makes us right in the sight of God. It's the fact that when we're baptized, we're baptized into the death of Christ. We're baptized into that death. That special, special occasion upon which he shed his blood. There's nothing that can wash away your sins and mine by the blood, but the blood of Jesus. But we contact that blood. When we obey the Lord in baptism, when we're baptized into his death, when we're buried with him, when we're raised to walk in newness of life, just like we talked about earlier from Romans chapter 6. Here's the truth. Not all churches baptize for the right reasons. And that's one of the reasons why we teach and talk about this. Not all churches baptize for the right reasons. In fact, many churches baptize for what we would call unscriptural purposes. Some churches baptize as a public demonstration of your faith. This is the belief and this is the practice of a lot of denominational churches today. They will be happy to give you baptism, but it's not for the remission of your sins. It's just simply a public demonstration of your faith. Uh, some churches baptize, they say, as an outward sign of an inward grace. That's common language we hear uh, that many churches associate with baptism. They say it's, it's not for the washing away of sin, you know, like the Bible says, but it's just the outward sign of an inward grace. Other churches would teach and tell you that it is an optional ceremony for those who have already been saved. Maybe by saying a prayer or asking Jesus into their heart. Now listen, all of these things sound very good. 
But the matter of fact is this, you know, we can't go to God's Word and find a book, chapter, and verse that says anything like this. We can't go to the Bible and find anything like this associated with the one baptism of Scripture. What I want you to understand this morning is that both the mode of baptism and the purpose are necessary. We need to receive the scriptural mode, which is immersion. We need to be baptized for a scriptural purpose or reason, which is for the remission of sins. Now, I'm going to try to illustrate this the best I can in the chart behind me. We're going to talk about a couple different scenarios and ask the question, is this the one baptism of Scripture? Maybe you're here this morning and you received immersion for baptism. You received the scriptural mode. That's good. But you weren't baptized for a scriptural reason or a scriptural purpose. It was for some other reason than the remission or forgiveness of your sins. The question we want to ask and consider, the question I want you to honestly ask and for yourself and consider for yourself is, is this scriptural baptism? Scriptural mode, but unscriptural purpose. We would have to honestly answer that question by saying, no, that's not the one baptism of Scripture. It's not scriptural baptism. You know, on the other hand, maybe you were baptized for the right reason with a scriptural purpose for the remission of sins, but maybe you weren't immersed. Maybe you were sprinkled or you are poured for baptism. We need to ask the question and be honest. Is that scriptural baptism? Is that the one baptism of the Bible? Scriptural purpose, unscriptural mode. To that, we would have to honestly answer and say, no, that's not scriptural baptism. And I want to tell you about the baptism that all of us need. The baptism that we all need will involve the scriptural mode, which is immersion, and it will involve the scriptural purpose, which would be for the remission of sins. And only then can we honestly say that we've received a scriptural baptism. We need both. We need both. If you're here this morning and you haven't received that one scripture that the baptism or that one baptism that scripture speaks of, God gives you instruction and direction in his word as to what you need to do. There's an example of people being rebaptized in the Bible. And I I suspect the reason why God gives us this example of rebaptism in the scriptures is because getting it right matters. Getting a scriptural baptism should matter to us. We've got an example, a story in scripture of some people that, you know, getting it right when it came to baptism, it mattered to them, it should matter to us. Let's close this lesson by looking at this example of rebaptism in Acts chapter 18 and in chapter 19. Acts 18, verse 24, the Bible says there was a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures. He came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. That's going to be significant that we understand that. I'll have more to say about it in a few moments. He, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue, the worship places of the Jews, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the word of God more perfectly. 
or they taught him the Word of God more completely. I want, I want you to understand what's happening here. It's important. It's important to understand what happened here in Ephesus in Acts 18 to understand the re story of rebaptism that we're going to look at in a moment in Acts 19, okay? What we have to understand is that before the death of Jesus, John the Baptist baptized. He gave a baptism of repentance, as we're going to see in just a few moments, and his baptism was right in line with his ministry, which was pointing forward to the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, okay? Pointing forward to Christ and what he would do. After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Christ told his apostles to go out and administer his baptism, Christian baptism, baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's the same baptism that we teach and we administer today. We don't teach John's baptism today. The purpose of John's baptism has been fulfilled and accomplished and after Christ died. John's baptism went away, and Jesus told his apostles to go forth and administer his baptism. His baptism points backward to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and it was also uh, was associated with a promise of the giving of God's Holy Spirit. Now, this man Apollos lived and preached after the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, okay? Many years after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But he only knew this outdated baptism of John the Baptist. Okay? You see that? He comes to Ephesus and he's a good preacher. He's teaching the things of the Lord. He's very eloquent. He's very diligent in teaching God's Word. But Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife couple, they were Christians. They clearly understood the need for people to receive Christian baptism, Christ's baptism. They understood John's baptism had been done away with at the cross. They hear this man Apollos teaching John's baptism. What did they do? They take him aside and expound unto him the way of God more perfectly. They teach him, you know. John's baptism was for then. What you need to be doing is baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And you know, Apollos, very admirably, he received that correction. He received that correction. He didn't get defensive, didn't get upset, didn't get bent out of shape. He took what they taught him, and he was the better man for it. He continued to go out and teach and preach. And now he's teaching and preaching after this Christian baptism, as he needs to do. Having said all that, let's look at what happens in Acts 19. Acts 19, verse 1. And it came to pass while Apollos was at Corinth, Apollos left Ephesus, went to Corinth. Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. Now, Paul has come in behind Apollos. Paul comes to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We've not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. He said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance saying unto the people that they should believe on him who should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, the Bible says, they were baptized. This is their second baptism, right? We, we could say they were rebaptized. They were baptized this time in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
All right, what happens? Well, here was Apollos before he met Aquila and Priscilla, and before he learned the truth about Christ's baptism, he's still there in Ephesus, remember, preaching and teaching and, and administering John's baptism. There were at least 12 Ephesians there that the Bible mentions here in Acts 19 who had received John's baptism. they just done exactly what the preacher Apollos told them to do. We have these 12 Ephesians who had received John's baptism apparently through the preaching of Apollos, okay? Well, Apollos leaves, he goes to Corinth. Paul comes to Ephesus where these 12 uh, uh, disciples were. Now, Paul understands that the baptism people need after the death of Christ would be Christian baptism. He understands John's baptism went away at the, de at the, at the cross of Christ. But Paul finds these 12 Ephesians there. He says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? They said, we don't know anything about a Holy Ghost. Now, Christ's baptism was preached in association with the promise of the giving of the Holy Spirit. Okay, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that's what Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Paul's mind immediately goes to baptism. When he realizes these 12 disciples don't know anything about the Holy Ghost, his mind immediately goes to baptism. He says, what baptism did you receive? Unto what were you baptized, he told them. And what did they say? They said, John's baptism. And then Paul understands it all clearly. And he explains to them, you know, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. John was telling people that they should believe on the one who should come after him. That's on Christ. So after Paul had clearly identified all this, and taught them the truth about the baptism that they needed to receive, they were rebaptized, weren't they? I want you to notice some of the things that Paul didn't tell this group of 12 uh, disciples at Ephesus. Paul didn't discover all this and then end up saying, well, what you did was close enough. Paul didn't do that. He didn't meet these 12 disciples and say, you know, you did the best you could. There's no doubt they were probably doing the best that they could. He didn't say you did the best you could. He didn't say God knows your heart. God knows all of our hearts. There's no doubt about that. God knows our heart. He didn't say, you know, don't worry about it. Baptism is just an outward ceremony that really doesn't matter. We hear people say things like this today. We hear people th say things like this, and we know that people reason this way about receiving a, a scriptural baptism. But what I want you to notice is this is not something that Paul thought, this is not something that Paul taught these 12 Christian disciples in Ephesus. The Bible says that when Paul discovered this, he saw a need for them to be rebaptized. God knew their heart. They probably did the best that they could. But, you know, Paul said, you need to be baptized again in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's what he did in Acts chapter 19, verse 5. They were baptized again, and they received that one baptism of Scripture that they needed. So what do we learn from all of this? I've, I've thrown a lot at you the last few minutes from Acts 18 and 19. Here's what it all boils down to. Getting a scriptural baptism mattered to Paul the Apostle. It was important to him that those people received the right baptism.
getting a scriptural baptism mattered to those 12 Ephesians. It mattered to them. Getting a scriptural baptism should matter to you, and it should matter to me. Listen, if you're here this morning, and you've been convicted by the scriptures that we've studied, if you can clearly see your need to do as these 12 disciples did, to be rebaptized, I hope and I pray that you will act upon that conviction today. That you'll be brave, you'll be bold. You know, those 12 Ephesian disciples didn't hesitate. And if you know you need to be rebaptized today, don't hesitate in doing that. Who should be rebaptized? Listen, if you're here and you were sprinkled or poured for baptism, I tell you today, friend, you need to be rebaptized. And I hope you will do that. If you're here this morning and you didn't adequately hear, believe, repent, or confess before your baptism, if you were baptized at a very, very young age, as a newborn, an infant, or a very, very young child, you still need to receive the one baptism of Scripture. If you were baptized in a denominational church that doesn't baptize for the scriptural purpose or reason, if they baptize for purposes or reasons other than the remission or the forgiveness of sins, you need to receive a scriptural baptism today. We want to help you. You know, I told you when we started this lesson, we're here to help people. I've done my very best to help you this morning by showing you the truth of God's Word. And we want to help you this morning if you need to receive a scriptural baptism. But that depends on you. That depends on you. It's your choice. I can't make that choice for you. All I can do is encourage you and beg with you and plead with you. If you're here this morning and you haven't received a scriptural baptism, please make a decision to do that today. We're going to sing a song of invitation, and as we do that... I want you to think about these scriptures, Acts, 20, Acts 8, 36. What's keeping you from receiving that scriptural baptism? Ananias told Saul, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for today? If you need to obey the gospel and baptism or you need the prayers of the church, make it known by coming forward while we stand and sing.